Belair family, good morning those here live and online. We've got a really important moment in the life of our church. As you know, there's so much that happens here. It's more than just Sundays. We, throughout the week, are the church. We don't just come to church. We are the church, and we're defined by the reality of Jesus in our lives. And we're going to commission some Stephen ministers, and I'm going to have them come up right now. All these Stephen ministers that are about to be commissioned as they're coming up, why don't we give them a warm, warm welcome. And as they come up, why don't you pull out, this is the weekly, this was handed to you, flip it over on the non-colored side is everything about Stephen Ministry. But Mike Morgan, who is our Senior Director of Caring Ministry, is going to share a little bit through an interview about this. This is a fun group. This is a good group. So They're excited. They yeah, are. they are. This is Gladdy Davis and Jeff Patches over here. And Gladdy, I wanted to, uh, as we are excited about Stephen Ministry, I think there's a large number of us that don't know what a Stephen's minister is. So could you help us with that? Sure. Um, there are church members that have been recruited and selected and trained and commissioned to serve the congregation for those who are going through a difficult time. Uh, when crisis is just too hard for you to handle alone, we come along beside you and help carry that load. We meet with you once a week until your crisis is over. Now, why do you see that as an important ministry specifically for Bel Air Presbyterian Church? Because you're a large church and five pastors can't do it all. Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, the pastors are the first contact, and there are other situations that are ongoing. So we come alongside and meet with them regularly, and we just are simply children children of God who love God and love hurting people and mm. want to share that love with them. You love people who are hurting. Yes. Just want to clarify. We do. <laughs> Just want to make sure everyone understood. That's right. We do. Okay. They're, they're, it's fun to see God work in hurting people. Yes. And, yes. you know, it is. Absolutely. All right, Jeff, um, Jeff. I have a qu couple questions for you. Um, Good morning. Let's say a friend of mine is hurting. And uh, it wasn't because of what I did, but let's just say they're, they're hurting. And, and I see them, and I want to uh, refer them to you. Can I do that, Jeff? Can I refer them to you? The way we're currently set up is if you desire a Stephen ministry, please, please call the office, and we'll make it happen. If you have a friend who you think would benefit from a Stephen minister, please tell them about our ministry. And you have no excuse not to, because please take the bulletin home with you. And if you want to share with a friend what we're about, share some of the, the PowerPoints on the back. Therefore, they would then call the church. We want it to come from them after you have encouraged them to do so. Okay, so they, they need to call the church, and who specifically are they calling? Correct. They're going to call, get the operator, and ask for Caring Ministries, which is Mike's department. Okay. Uh, they will specifically ask for a Stephen Minister, at which time a small phone interview will be done. And if there's a fit, and chances are that there will be, they will be referred to us so that we can do a more intensive one-on-one -on -one interview, after which chances are very good that a Stephen minister can come alongside you on a weekly basis and help you through whatever you're going through. Very good. That's awesome. Wow. So this group has gone through 50 hours of training, but we know that it's not just training that enables them to, to care for, to serve, to love hurting people in this congregation, but it's God's Spirit and power in and through them. So we want to pray for them. We want to commission them. So 
Ready for this? This is going to be a little participatory. If you have been ordained as an elder, if you've been ordained as a deacon, if you've been commissioned as a Stephen minister, I want to invite you, if you're able, to come on up front. This group's going to move to the front of the beamer right now. And if you could come on up front, we're going to lay hands on them and everybody else. If you're just kind of as a sign of openness, if you'd be open to just put your hands open in this space. And if you're online streaming with us, uh, whether it's sitting down or standing up, if you just want a posture of just openness and, and gratitude and thankfulness, let's pray for this group of people as we commission them, as we identify their choice to serve. God, would you in this place just fill our hearts and our prayers? God, we thank you for this group of people. We thank you that they've stepped out of their comfort zones, stepped out of their normal patterns of their lives for this training. But even before that, God, you called them to follow you. May they hear so clearly your voice as the true shepherd, as the, as the true head of this church, as the true pastor of this sh- church. God, I pray that you would guide each of them, that you would empower them, that they would be able to listen at a deeper level, that they would be able to love at a deeper level, that they would be able to serve at a deeper level because of your love and spirit and power through them. God, we, as witnesses to your love and grace in their life, commission them to serve this church body, and for that we are grateful. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, and we say together, let's thank this group as they make their way off. And as they make their way off, why don't you grab your, grab your Bibles, we'll turn to Mark 14 as we continue on in this sermon series. What an amazing picture of service and love that really will get to the heart of it here in Mark 14. In fact, we're in the third week of a, of a sermon series, and we're exploring the things that God is passionate about. And we see that God clearly extends an invitation to us to join Him, to participate with Him in the things that He's passionate about. And so we, in seven weeks, as we head towards Easter, are going through seven different moments in the last week of the earthly ministry of Jesus through the gospel according to Mark. And we're building towards Easter Sunday. In fact, as a reminder, many of you have heard this, and I'll remind us again that Easter, we're coming back on a campus here at Bel Air. We're bringing Easter back to Bel Air. We're going to have three services in this room, 8 a.m., 10 a.m., and noon. And we want this to be an amazing opportunity, not just for us to show up, but for us to invite our friends, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors to come and hear and experience the love, the extravagant love that we sung about a little earlier in this place as we gather. Even before that at 6 a.m., we're going to have this sunrise celebration out in the patio. Some of you got up early this morning or felt early because of the time change. Well, you can get up even earlier on Easter Sunday. Join us up on the patio as we watch the sunrise, as we greet, as we pray for churches across the city that will lift up the name of Jesus. And so my prayer for us as a church is that we would be a hospitable church, that we would be a welcoming church, that we would show up and not just ask the question, okay, what am I going to get out of it today, but that we would show up asking ourselves the question, perhaps even praying, God, what are you going to give through me today? You never know what a smile that you extend to somebody or a welcome that you extend to somebody will do for somebody. You, you, You never know. 
You never know if you'll meet somebody in the parking lot or on the shuttle or here in this place. You could change the trajectory of somebody's life. So this Easter, I'm asking, don't just show up and go through the motions of another Easter. Show up and bring yourself and pray, God, how would you use me? How would you invite others through me to come hear the transforming love of Jesus Christ? In fact, we've got some formal ways in which you can serve, formal ways in which you can participate that day. In fact, after the service, if you're here on campus, you can go right outside out onto the patio area and you can talk to our team. Mary Grace is going to be there and the rest of the team. Can, they've got a full sign-up sheet where you can put your name down. You can commit to serve. You can greet. You can greet people. You can be an usher. There's so many ways in which we can serve and create a hospitable environment that we as a church would invite people to come, that they would experience not only that warm welcome, but the transforming love of Jesus. But we can't do that on our own. We have to first look at the type of love that, that God extends us before we can love and serve others. That's what we're going to do today. So Mark 14, if you have that, I'm going to read Mark 14, verses 3 through 11 at the end of this section. It's up on the screen. If you're listening online, you can follow along with me. Hear this. This is Mark narrating this moment, this meal that Jesus is at. Verse 3, while he, this is Jesus, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard, and she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him money. So he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. This, my friends, is God's word. So there's a, there's a scene that is unfolding that actually in that day was very common. In fact, whenever there was a meal, in fact, in the Near East, whenever there was guests and they would recline at a table, I want you to imagine this, there would be a table in the center and they would literally recline on their side and their, and their head and their face not only would face the guests but also face the meal and so their, the rest of their body and their feet would be the farthest place from the table. Everybody around the table is kind of leaning in, laying down, facing in. In that culture, there was not showers. There was no Kohler. There was no Moen, you know, all these great brands of faucets. There was no bathtubs. There was no deodorant. There was no perfume like we have today. There was, uh, in many ways, the experience that many of us don't really experience very often in our day-to-day. -day. It was the experience of absolute stench. <laughs> and, and it wasn't just bad in terms of our standards. It was bad in terms of their standards. And whenever you gathered for a meal, 
to get the stomach to be able to enjoy the meal, there had to be something that would mask the stench, mask the smell. So it's very common for the, for the host or the hostess to come out and to take some ointment that had a very concentrated perfume in it and to just put a simple dab on the forehead of each of the guests. And so what that did, because it's so close to you, you've perhaps experienced this, maybe you've sprayed a little too much cologne, or maybe you've had a three-year-old like me that sprays a lot of cologne on you, and it just, you carry it around with you for the day, and it's almost like this, this protective barrier around you. And so it's very common for that host to go around and dab a little bit on each of the guests on their forehead. So when she comes out, she's got this nice alabaster jar of pure nard, perhaps from Egypt, very costly, very expensive, concentrated perfume. No one's thinking twice until she does what she does. And before we unpack that, I want to see how they respond, the people in the room, how they respond. In fact, it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of tame how the English translates it. Look in verse 5. Open those Bibles back up. So we're in Mark 14, verse 5. At the end of that verse, it says, and they scolded her. Now, some translations say they rebuked her, or some go so far to say they rebuked her harshly. But in the original language of the New Testament, the Koine Greek in which it was written, Mark uses a word that is much more violent in nature. It says that they bellow with anger. They roar like animals. They have a visceral reaction at what she has just done. But what did she do? Well, there's three things that she did under the surface. You can see what she physically did, but there's three things that she did that actually give us a little clue that actually are an invitation for us to live the same way. The three things. First, she shatters her security. Second, she shatters her pride. And third, she shatters her religion. So let's unpack each of these three things. She shatters her security. What do I mean by that? Well, in fact, this, this very costly perfume, Mark notes, that somebody says that, that it's worth at least 300 denarii. Now, in that ancient time, that was roughly an annual salary. Now, imagine how much you make in a year. Imagine that spent like that. Now, I don't know what kind of gifts you give your friends, your loved ones, your family, your neighbors, or, you know, coworkers, but chances are it's pretty rare. Perhaps you've never given a gift that is equal to your annual salary. And in fact, many believe that it is a family heirloom this was before hedge funds, this was before 401ks, this is before, you know, investment properties. There's no, there's no retirement fund, there's no nest egg set aside. And so often families would have something that was passed down from generation to generation. Many scholars believe that this was their security, this was their nest egg, this was their hedge fund. In case a war came through, in case there was famine in the land, they couldn't provide for themselves other than this very costly, this annual salary's worth item. And in that moment, she shatters not only her security, her family's security. And they bellow with anger. All they can do is look at the money lost and waste, and they overlook Mary, who's lost in worship to Jesus. In fact, you might say, Mary, wait, I, I didn't hear the name Mary. Mary, it's, it's, it's a woman. Where did you get Mary from? Well, actually, we have Matthew, we have 
Mark. We also have John. In fact, Matthew 26, you can read later, John chapter 12, record this same dinner, this same moment. So we get all these different angles on this same moment. This is Mary from Bethany, and she shatters her security. She doesn't just give a dab. She doesn't just give 10%. She doesn't even pour all the contents out. She literally breaks it. She doesn't want to hold anything back. Extravagant love. She's saying, I will give everything to follow you. I will give everything to worship you. I don't need this security. You are my security. You are my peace. And she shatters it, and they bellow with anger. But beyond that, she shatters something else. She shatters her, her pride. In fact, in the first century, it was very, very rare. In fact, actually outlawed where a servant actually would be required to take off the sandals of a master in a home. In fact, we see in Mark that she anoints his head, but in John, we see that she also anoints his feet. These are stinky feet. You know, they don't have the nice socks that we have. These are not, you know, people who had a pedicure, you know, this weekend, men. And I know some of you women too, you know, these are not the nice, the ni- I, I've seen some, yeah, I know, you've told me. You know, we, we, we like our feet nice and clean, nice and, nice and pretty, right? This is very different in the first century. And in fact, whenever there were servants in a household, there was actually a law that was prescribed by the first century rabbis to protect people's rights so that people wouldn't have to stoop down so low so they didn't have to spend their dignity, spend their pride. And they actually outlawed masters making servants unloose their own sandals, unloose their own shoes. And she does exactly that. And they bellow with anger. All they can do is look down on her with shame, and all she can do is look up at Jesus and His sufficiency. And she pours out her pride. She, she pours out herself. She does not care what anyone else thinks. She is extending extravagant love to Jesus. She not only gives her things, she gives herself publicly. She's at the feet of Jesus, adoring Him, anointing Him, worshiping Him. But you see, she doesn't just give her security. She doesn't just give her pride. She doesn't just shatter those things. She also goes beyond that. She shatters her religion. Now, you might say, well, I don't understand that. What do you mean she shatters her religion? In fact, it's, it's very easy to overlook. It's easy to miss. And some of you might say, well, why is a pastor saying something negative about religion? Well, it's so simple. It's so subtle. But religion is very different than a relationship with God. You see, religion is all about measuring up. Religion is all about what do I have to do to earn God's love, earn God's favor? What do I have to do to to keep up? What do I have to do to fit in? What do I have to do to get in? What do I have to do to, to be loved? And there's all these laws that were swirling around at that time, trying to figure out and make sense of how somebody could actually do what they needed to do to earn God's love. And the religious leaders, the religious people around her bellow with anger. How dare she? How dare she defile herself? How dare she stoop that low? You see, religion cannot produce that level of love. You see, you can be religious and you can give to God. 
You can be religious and be at the feet of Jesus worshiping, but you can't be religious and give your heart. You see, it's, 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 it's hard to give things. It's harder to, to give yourself. It's hardest to give in. She not only gave her things, she not only gave from herself, she gave Jesus her heart in that moment. She wasn't trying to earn God's love. She was simply responding to the love that she saw in Jesus Christ, and she extravagantly worshiped Him. Now, maybe some of you have heard the story. It was from a few decades ago. In fact, on the East Coast, there was a huge storm that, that, that came rolling through, and the waters rose from the storm. And there was actually some students, college-age students, that were outside, and one of them got swept up in the rising waters. And as that, that college student was carried away down the water, they actually got to this place where they spilled over a dam. Normally, it would stop before, but it was, even the dam was overflowing. So, it was like this 10-foot drop. And this new waterfall of water that was coming down caused this maelstrom, this huge stirring up, and there was all this commotion, all this turmoil. And this student fell over the edge and was in this, caught up in this whirlpool. And the friends who had chased afterwards were yelling at their friends, swim, swim. Come on, you got to get out. And, and, and at first, it's kind of like, okay, he'll get it. But no, no, he just keeps going around and around. He's trying to fight for his life. He's trying everything he can to claw his way to survive. And the minutes go by, and it's, it's, it's a, a cold part of the year, and, and he starts to feel his body just begin to slow down. His energy is, is being poured out, and he's trying to swim, trying to swim, trying to get out of it. He's doing all this work, trying to do all this work, and his friends are yelling. They're screaming, you've got to swim. You've got to get out of that. They're starting to panic. They don't want to jump in. They don't know what to do, and they're watching their friend just swirling and swirling. And he begins to just lose energy and lose hope. He's got nothing left to give. And in that awful moment, I can't even imagine what that would have felt like. He, he, just, he, he just gives in. And he's sucked down. And then he pops up about 10 yards downstream. What happened? What happened? They rush. They get him. They pull him to the side. He can barely breathe. He can barely move. They get him up. He's on the edge of hypothermia. The rescuers that come and they do some study later on, they realize what had happened, that he had fallen over the edge, he caught up in this maelstrom, and in his swimming, in his trying to get out of it on his own, he was fighting against the current that caused him just to stay in it, and it wasn't until he finally just gave in that it sucked him down so that it could come up to live. And you've got this Mary who doesn't just give her things, doesn't just give her life and her pride, she gives it all. She just gives in. She's dead to herself. How can you say that? How, what, what do you see that she does that? You see religious people, they give things. They give, they give, you know, money. They give their time. They give their energy, but they never let down their hair. What do you mean by that? Well, in John, it says that literally, Mary, after anointing his head, after pouring this expensive, expensive perfume on his feet, loosens her hair, unbinds her hair, and lets her hair down. Now, culturally, we're so removed from the first century. You might say, what's the big deal for that? I mean, maybe it was hot. She wanted to just let it down. I don't know. In the first century, if you as a woman were to let down your hair in public, that was grounds for divorce. 
If you were single and you let down your hair in public, you were not the type of person that somebody would want to marry. When you let down your hair in public, it communicated that you were open, that you were open for intimacy, that you were open for love, that you were the last person that any good, reputable person would want to be with. And in fact, in that culture, there was only one place in all the land where a woman could let down her hair and not be judged, not be filled with shame. In fact, she was welcome to let down her hair. And that was at home. Only in the privacy, in the security, in the confidence of her own home could she do that. And they bellow with anger at her. They roar like animals. Yet she's found her home at the feet of Jesus. She's in a physical home, yes. Her father, Simon the leper, this is her physical home, but it's a public place, it's a public scene, and she is so confident. She is so secure. She's so filled with love, this intimate relationship that she has with Jesus. She lets down her hair. Religion cannot produce that. Never in trying to earn God's love would you go that far, that extravagant love. So why would, why would Mary do that for Jesus? Well, you see, it's because Jesus had already done that for Mary. In fact, if you were to take a step back, if you were to look at Matthew, if you were to look at Mark, if you were to look at John, you'd actually see all these different scenes before this moment, before Mary Bethany anoints Jesus. You first are introduced to her when she's with her sister Martha. Remember this scene? Martha's busy taking care of all these things, and all Mary wants to do is sit at the feet of Jesus. She takes the posture of a disciple. She takes the posture of someone who just wants to listen, to learn from the rabbi, from the master, from Jesus. We see her later, after her brother Lazarus has died. He's been dead in the grave for four days. In John chapter 11, you can read about this. This is actually just days right before this scene unfolds that we just read about. Lazarus is dead. Martha comes running to Jesus and says, Rabbi, if you were just here, he would still be alive. And Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? And she says, yes. But then Mary runs up. She asks the exact same question, but she doesn't stand. She kneels at his feet. And Jesus, so moved, begins to weep himself. He is deeply moved. And he begins to charge towards that tomb of which Lazarus has been buried and dead. And Mark uses a word to describe what Jesus does. As he runs towards that tomb, as he runs towards death, as he runs towards the brokenness of this world, as he runs towards the thing that, that, that contains us, as he runs towards the things that is so counter to, to what God loves, Mark says that Jesus bellows with anger. He roars like an animal. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus raises from the dead. How can Mary, at the feet of Jesus, while people are bellowing, roaring at her, how can she drown all of that out? It's because she hears a louder voice of love. 
that's not directed at her. It's directed at the brokenness of this world that invites her in to respond in that way where she shatters her security, she shatters her pride, she shatters her religion. In an absolute extravagant worship, she anoints him. And Jesus says, do you realize what she's done? She's anointed me for burial. You see, Mary has been listening. Mary's been looking. She's been, she's been watching. She's been learning. She gets in that moment what nobody else gets. All the disciples didn't get it. None of the religious leaders got it. In that moment, she understands what Jesus is about to do. In John chapter 11, it says that after Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, that some of Mary's friends began to worship Jesus, but another group of her friends went to tell the religious leaders so they would come and capture Jesus and kill him. Mary didn't understand all that was going to happen, but she knew enough that she knew that Jesus was about to go to his death. She got it. She, she, she realized. She didn't understand all the pictures. She, she didn't have the fullness of the understanding, but she, she, she knew that he was not only going to give things, he wasn't just going to give himself, he was going to give in, he was going to give his life. He was going to be plunged into the depths on the cross so that we could be raised to life. You see, she saw and she received that extravagant love, and she simply just responded. You see, religion is spelled with two letters, D-O, do. A relationship with God through Jesus Christ is spelled with four letters, D-O-N-E. It's done. Jesus paid it all. He went to the depths so you didn't have to. And the longer that you look at Jesus, the longer you allow that extravagant love to pour into your life, it'll cause you to shatter the security in your life, to hold on to the real security that He offers. The longer that you look at Jesus, you'll be willing to shatter your pride. And in that humility, you find your sufficiency, your wholeness, your identity in Christ. No matter what people say around you, as you follow Jesus, as you serve Him, as you love the unlovable, as you pray for your enemies, as you serve in ways that the world cannot understand, that the drowning out voice of love would be louder than the bellowing of anger of your critics. You see, religion can't produce that, but a relationship with God through Jesus that simply begins with empty hands of faith saying, Jesus, wow, you take me as I am. You enter into my stench. You love me just as I am to transform me. Wow. You see, the word compassion literally means to suffer with, to suffer alongside. Jesus invites us to be compassionate, to extend compassion to others. But we'll only get that if we first listen to, if we understand the fact that Jesus enters into our suffering. He suffers alongside us. So when he says, you'll always have the poor with you, but you only have me for a little bit, he's not demeaning the poor. He's not putting down the poor. In fact, throughout all of Scripture, it actually elevates the poor. God is constantly identifying with the poor. In fact, you could make the argument that the poor, the broken, the down and out, the marginalized are the ones that, that Jesus uses the most for God's kingdom. And so he doesn't devalue them. He says, considering how valuable they are, she understands how unique and set apart and whole I am, that she is worshiping me. You know, in that moment, as Judas runs out, as he tries to sell Jesus 
There's Mary left behind, sold out for Jesus. As he runs out thinking, man, I could have used all of that for, for my gain. Mary's there saying, Jesus, would you just use me? You see, you can love the poor and not love God, but you cannot love God and not love the poor at the same time. When we first look at him, we follow Jesus. It will transform our lives. We will actually become compassionate people. We can't generate that on our own. So would you in this day just take a long, loving look at Jesus, simply him, and would that transform you in ways that only he can? Let's pray. Jesus' extravagant love is something impossible for us to, to manufacture on our own. We cannot give you truly our hearts if we think that we have to earn your love. So, God, I pray that we would take a cue from Mary and sit at your feet, that we would listen to you, that we would learn from you, that we would see that you gave yourself for us. And as we head towards Easter, as we're reminded that, Jesus, you always have the last word in our lives, may we reflect upon the links that you went to, pouring out your life for us, to reconcile us to you. Jesus, we thank you for your love, and we simply sit in that truth now, and we're left only with one response. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.